In this morning's lesson, we're going to take a, a break from our going through 1 Corinthians to look at um, a topic that's been uh, very much on my, my heart and my mind. Is It really emerged as, um, as I was looking at studying for something else, and it became clear that this, to me, that this was something I needed to stop and take a look at, and I think it's it's something that's helpful to all of us. And I believe it's it will help us to understand more clearly who God is and how what he what we should expect from God in this life as Christians. And uh, I think it's also to me it's uh, it's it's a real dividing point in what direction we go in life as Christians. Uh, it's really it's really some foundational things I want to take a look at. I want to begin in Deuteronomy chapter eight. Starting in verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1. And this is a passage that Jesus quotes from when he's tempted by Satan. I'm going to read. Verses 1 through 10, Deuteronomy chapter 8, of course, the book of Deuteronomy is uh, was given by Moses after the Jews have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they cross into the promised land. So Moses is giving some final direction before he dies to the people. Let's start reading in verse 1. Every commandment I command you today, you must be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and inherit the land the Lord swore to your fathers. Now you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God led you in the desert to deal harshly with you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he dealt harshly with you and weakened you with hunger and fed you with manna which Uh, your fathers did not know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word proceeding from the mouth of God, man shall live. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your feet become callous these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good and great land where torrents of waters and springs of bottomless depths flow through the plains and through the mountains, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will not eat your bread in poverty and in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and from whose hills you shall you can dig copper. Thus you shall eat and be full and bless the Lord your God for the good land he gave you. The, the version I'm reading from here is based on the Septuagint. And actually that's when Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8 uh, here in uh, at the beginning when he says... Uh, a man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting word for word from the Septuagint. So I figured I'd read a translation that's, it sounds slightly different than what you're used to. Um, that's the reason why. Now, there's a lot in here. Uh, and one of the things that, that I often focus on is 
what he says in verse 3, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What I want to take a look at specifically this morning, focus on, is what it, what it says in verse 2. He says, Now you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God led you in the desert to deal harshly with you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. I want to stop and take a look at how God treated the Jews back then and and then take a look and see if God treats us the same way. Was this just a way he treated them or is this the way God treats his people all the time? Now, it says that God treated them harshly He tested them to see if he would obey them. He wanted to reveal what was in their hearts. Now, God knows everything and can see everything. It's a question I would have. If I want to know if a battery is any good or not, I'll hook it up to a battery tester, and and the dial will either go in in the green zone or the red zone. Now, God knows the thoughts of our heart. Why doesn't God just use his spiritual x-ray vision and look into our hearts and say, this guy's got a good heart, or this guy's got a bad heart, or this guy has a divided heart? Why in the world, if God wants to know what's in our hearts, why would he use such a a, a kind of a clunky way of going about it, in, in a sense? He's going to, he puts them in the wilderness puts them through hardship, and then he finds out as they're in hardship what's in their hearts. And the way he tells what's in their hearts is not by spiritual mind reading. He tells what's in their hearts by whether they obey him or they disobey him when they're going through tough times. That's what he did in the, in the wilderness. And I want to take a look at a few other passages of Scripture and see if we can detect a, a pattern here. Or not. Um, now, a lot, a lot of people think, well, the reason the reason I'm I'm really I can be confident that God is pleased with me in my life is because I have a good heart, and I know I have a good heart because I have these really warm, gushy feelings of love and warmth and affection by God especially when I'm listening to certain music or when I'm singing certain songs, I really feel a lot of love for God. So I must have a great heart, and I'm sure that God knows that and really appreciates that. Well, why does God need to test people's hearts? Why does he do that? Why would God put people through trials to find out what's in their hearts rather than know directly? Now, I don't know. I can, I can, I'm trying to, trying to wrestle with that and think, why does God do it that way? And I don't have to know why, but I just kind of like to know why. Maybe he does it that way because the way our heart is isn't a static thing. It's a changing thing. So sometimes people's hearts can change as they go through 
hardships. Some people's hearts get softened or they get hardened by hardships that they go through. So it's, it's not a one-time reading. It changes over time. People have good hearts and they go bad. They have bad hearts and they go good. There are plenty of examples throughout, through all that, throughout all the scripture. The other thing about doing it this way is it's, it's clear for everybody to see. It's objective. There's an objective standard. When I take a test, I'm taking a class right now, and I had a quiz on Tuesday night in the class I was taking. And the teacher asked at the end of the quiz, he said, do you think it was a fair quiz? And I said, yeah. Was, was this a hard quiz or an easy quiz? I said, if I knew, if anybody who knew all the material, it would be an easy quiz. So I, I, didn't, I didn't get perfect on the test, but I thought, hey, it, it showed me it showed me the teacher and everybody it was right out there. Did I know the material or did I not know it? That's what a test will do. It will show you where you really are. And, and so this is, an, I think the test will, will be an objective thing where both God, the angels, other people, and, and I myself, everybody can see it's right out in the open when we're tested that way. So, God dealt with them harshly. He tested them to see what was in their hearts. It's important to understand this is not a performance thing. It's not, he's not saying, do you measure up? Have you done enough? He just wants to know when you're put through tough times, are you going to obey me or not obey me? All right, so it's not about earning their salvation. It's about, do they have obedient hearts? What's, what is their heart really like? Not faking anybody out. And then after that, he says that he chastens us as a man chastens his own son. Now, that should sound very familiar to us because that's the same language that's picked up in Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about God chastens us as a father chastens the son that he loves. So the picture here is God is putting us through hard times. He's a loving father, and he wants what's best for us in the end. It may be tough right now, but this is all given by a loving father who wants the best result down the road. I'm going to have a second example. I'm actually going to go backwards in the Bible to Genesis chapter 22 on the subject of testing. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. This is one of the most famous tests in the Bible, one of the most famous heart tests in the Bible. And it's discussed in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17 as as an example of Abraham's faith. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your beloved son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a whole burnt offering on one of the mountains, I tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split firewood for the whole burnt offering and arose and went to the place God told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Thus Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go over yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. 
So Abraham took the firewood of the whole burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Then he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. Then Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the firewood, but where is the sheep for the whole burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the sheep for the whole burnt offering. So the two of them went together. They came to the place where God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the firewood in order. Then he bound Isaac, his son, hand and foot, and laid him on the altar upon the firewood. Then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. Then he replied, Do not lay your hand on the lad nor do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, since for my sake you have not spared your beloved son. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. So he brought it for the whole burnt offering in the place of his son. Thus Abraham called the name of the place the Lord has appeared, as it is said to this day in the mountain of the Lord it was seen. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you did this thing, and for my sake did not spare your beloved son, I will certainly bless you and assuredly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. And your seed shall inherit the cities of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his servants, and they rose and went together to the well of Oath, and Abraham dwelt at the well of oath. So, you see the same pattern here. Starts off, verse 1 says, God tested Abraham. Abraham is treated harshly. He's told, Go sacrifice the son you love on the mountain. His heart is tested to see whether he'd obey God or not. He passes the test. The angel says when he has his son bound on the wood and he has the knife ready to slay his son, the angel says, now I know that you fear God. Now I know what your heart is really like because you obeyed God in the face of a very challenging test. And then the end result is tremendous blessings happen, but in the distant future. He says, your descendants will inherit this land, and through your seed, singular, all nations of the earth will be blessed, which of course is a reference to Galatians. It says that this refers to Jesus, his seed singular. So, this is, this is a blessing that would not come to pass for hundreds of years, the first part of it, and then thousands of years, the, the second part of it, or over a thousand years, the second part. So, uh, so the same pattern is there. God is testing his servant through a harsh test to see what's in his heart. And here he passed the test. Uh, another example, 1 Samuel chapter 13. Yes, that's Saul. First Samuel chapter thirteen. 
Start reading in verse 4. So Saul has been appointed the king over Israel, over God's kingdom of the earth at that time. All he had to do was kill the other king. Uh, that there's There are two tests here, and that's the second one. But you're, you're absolutely right, Adam. We're going to read the first test and then the second test for Saul. So Adam, Adam's, Adam knows his Bible here. He knows where we're going. First, first Samuel chapter 13, verse 4. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen came up against Israel, and as many troops as the sand on the seashore. And they came up and encamped at Michmash, opposite Beth-Avon, southward. When the men of Israel saw they were in danger, they did not draw near. Instead, the people hid in caves, in holes, in rocks, in trenches, and in pits. They even crossed the river Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still in Gilgal, and all the people standing with him were confused. Then Saul waited, as Samuel had said, for seven days for a testimony. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and his people scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring me a sacrifice so I may offer the whole burnt offering and peace offering. And he offered the whole burnt offering. And it came to pass, when he finished presenting the burnt offering, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him so that Samuel might bless him. Then Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people scatter from me, and you didn't come within the days of testimony as you had arranged, and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come against me at Gilgal, and I have not prayed in the presence of the Lord. Therefore I forced myself, and I offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have rendered it vain because you did not keep my commandments which the Lord commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not stand. The Lord will seek a man for himself after his own heart, and the Lord will appoint him to be ruler for his people because you have not kept what the Lord your God commanded you. So I see the, the same situation, the, the same pattern here, different situation. Saul is put in a terrible situation by God. The Philistine army is gathering. His own soldiers are deserting. They're confused. They're discouraged. He's waited for the seven days for Samuel to show up, and he hasn't shown up yet. So what he does at that point in, point in time is, he breaks God's command. He was told to wait until Samuel showed up to offer the sacrifice. He broke God's command because he was afraid and he was in a terrible situation. And as a result, he loses the kingdom. He loses the kingdom because of his heart. He had a problem with his heart. And that's what he's told is that God, he's he's going to lose the kingdom and God will raise up a man after his own heart, a man who has a better heart because he wouldn't obey God. So he fails the first time that he's tested in the face of the trial of discouragement and impending defeat. In another battle, this is the one that Adam was uh, was was thinking about. Here we're gonna we're gonna get into that one next, Adam. But you're absolutely right. In in First Samuel chapter 15 is another story in another battle, but it's the same same heart, different circumstances. 
1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the Lord. Thus says, thus says the Lord Sabaoth, I will exact vengeance for what Amalek did to Israel when he met Israel on the journey coming out of Egypt. Now go and strike down Amalek and Jerem and all of his things and take nothing from him. You shall utterly destroy him. You shall curse him and everything that is his. You shall not spare anything of his, and you shall slay both man and woman, infant and nursing child, calf and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul told the people and numbered them in Gilgal 400,000 troops and from Judah 30,000 troops. And Saul came to the cities of Amalek to set an ambush in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go and depart from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed mercy to the sons of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the midst of Amalek. Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havaliah all the way to Shur, which is before Egypt. He took captive Agag, king of the Amalekites, and he killed all the people of Jerem with the edge of the sword. But Saul and all the people spared Agag and the best of his sheep and the oxen, the fatlings, the vineyards, and everything good. They had no desire to utterly destroy them, only every despised and worthless things. These they destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I deeply regret I set up Saul to reign as king, for he turned back from following me and has not kept my words. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early and journeyed to a meeting with Israel in the early morning. Then it was reported to Samuel saying, Saul has been in Carmel to gather help for himself. Samuel turned the chariot and went to Saul and Gilgal. And behold, Saul offered the whole burnt offering to the Lord, the first of the plunder brought out of Amalek. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you by the Lord. I established all of the many things the Lord said. But Samuel said, What then is the sound of the flock in my ears, and the sound of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, I brought them from Amalek, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen in order that they may be sacrificed to the Lord your God. The rest I utterly destroyed. But Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said to Saul, Were you not small before him? You who with a scepter lead all the families of the tribes of Israel, even so the Lord still anointed you king over Israel. Now the Lord sent you off on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners for me, the Amalekites, and fight against them until you consume them. Why did you not hear the voice of the Lord, but rushed down to the spoils and did evil before the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, For the sake of the people, I listened to their voice. But I also went in the ways the Lord sent me. I brought back Agag, king of the Amalekites, and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took off the took of the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of what should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice before the Lord our God in Gilgal. Then Samuel said, If only the desired whole burnt offerings and desired sacrifices were equal to the Lord as compared to one who heeds the voice of the Lord. Behold, Hearing is better than a good sacrifice, and obedience than the fat of rams. That sin is one and the same as divination. Idols bring grief and pain because you rejected the word of the Lord, 
The Lord has rejected you from the remaining king over Israel. So, Saul's put in a challenging situation again, but this time, instead of being faced with defeat, he's faced with victory. He's faced with victory, but he has a desire to hang on to a trophy king, King Agag, and he's pressured by the troops that want to keep all the good stuff. They want to destroy all the worthless things, and he's tempted to only partially obey God, which is basically disobeying God. Which is a big mistake because Agag turned, turned out to be the father of Haman. Okay, it was a, it was definitely a mistake for for uh, uh, for him to hang on to Agag. No question about that. He fooled himself to think that he was obeying God, and he tried to fool Samuel, but he wasn't successful. The problem was he had a disobedient heart. It wasn't that he didn't do enough for God, but he was basically disobedient. And God's attitude is that partial obedience is equivalent to witchcraft, to divination. The God rejected him and he couldn't remain as king. So he failed the test. He was tested twice and he failed the test both times. Both, one time he was in a challenging situation. God put him in the face of impending defeat. And the other one in, in the face of victory and being peer pressured by the people he was supposed to be leading and give, giving into that. The next example I want to take a look at is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tested. By the devil. That's right. Jesus is tested by the devil. In Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it's the word that's, that's rendered tempted there is the same word, uh, pirazo, which is, which is uh, used in the passages that we just read from, from Genesis chapter 22 in, in the Septuagint. The word can be translated tested or tempted. It's the exact same word. So basically, he was tested by Satan. He was tested by the devil. And when he fasted, verse 2, when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now the tempter came to him and he said, if you were the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, sent him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you were the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in your hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God, or test again. In verse 8, Again the devil took him up an exceeding, to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, All these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. 
So Jesus is facing a time of suffering. He's fasting 40 days. He's hungry. And and Satan tempts him during a time of hardship. The first temptation is to turn the stones into bread, perform a miracle to feed yourself. But when he is temp- was tested, he did not fall into temptation. He hang- hung on to the word of God and he obeyed what God said. In Hebrews, it talks about Jesus' life on the earth, how he lived. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, starting read, start reading in verse 10. Speaking about Jesus, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their, no, sorry, for, for him, meaning the Lord, uh, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And the word perfect or complete, that Jesus had to go through sufferings in order to be complete or to be perfect. Now we think Jesus never sinned, so he was never imperfect in the sense of committing sin, but he wasn't perfected. He had to be perfected through going through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am in the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted or being tested, he is able to aid those who are who are tempted. And then continue to chapter 3 and verse, uh, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. But we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize in our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus had to go through suffering in order to be perfected and in order to truly be our brother. When he was Tested and tempted, he obeyed. He never sinned. He was made complete through suffering. Through obedience, through obediently staying with God in the face of suffering all the way to the time of the cross. 
So the first example of this pattern was the people in the wilderness. The second one we looked at was Abraham. The third was the example of, of Saul. The fourth one, Jesus. And the fifth one is us. Now what Jesus talked about for us, I want to start off with Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In the Sermon on the Mount, he started off by saying that for his followers, their righteousness would have to exceed that of the Pharisees if they wanted to be part of his kingdom. Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few... (coughs) who find it. Difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Luke chapter 9. This is a passage that we should be very familiar with, but in light of everything we've looked at so far, let's take another look at this. Luke chapter 9, starting verse 21. He strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Then he said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it for man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels." So Jesus says the way is narrow. The way of following him is narrow. He's going to have to suffer and die, and any of his disciples who want to follow him are going to have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. What does it mean to take up your cross? I think it's pretty obvious. It means it involves it means suffering, being willing to suffer, being willing to be rejected, being willing to undergo pain and to stay with, stay with God in the midst of all that. Let's take a look at John chapter 15. So the, these, are, these are things that are directed at us, those of us who want to follow Jesus. John chapter 15 and verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch... In me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. What do you think he's referring to when he says, every branch in me that bears fruit is going to be pruned? 
What do you do when you prune, you prune a vine? It means you take the scissors out and you cut it. You cut it back so that it bears more fruit. What's Jesus communicating here when he says, anybody who remains in me and bears fruit is going to be pruned? I think it's pretty clear. You're going to undergo suffering. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be cut back by God himself so that you can become more fruitful. Verse 3, you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they're gathered them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me, I have words abide in you. You will ask what you desire and shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. So what does it mean to love Jesus? What does it mean to abide in the vine? What does it mean to abide in his love? Well, I like it. it's not a question to you about your face. You got to tell them about it. It's not a question to you. What, I'm sorry. What was the question, Adam? I said it's not a question to you about your face. You got to tell them about it. If somebody, yes, Adam said, if somebody questions you about your faith, you need to tell them about it. Absolutely. Amen. You, you don't need to be afraid to share it either. That's right. You can't be. You can't be ashamed of Jesus. You have to be willing to 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 share your faith. And we have to abide in him. Without him, we can do nothing, but we have to obey him. That's what it means to love Jesus, is to abide in his teachings, to obey his commands. Uh, and really, that's the subject of First Peter and Hebrews to a large extent. It's addressed to Christians, and it talks about being willing to suffer in the face of challenges and suffering that, we, that, 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 are, that God puts in our path. In Hebrews chapter 10, let's turn there. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and more enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise." For yet a little while, he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the souls. And it gives us examples after that of, of examples of faith that we're supposed to follow in verse 17. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, 
by Isaac your seed shall be called. And then down in chapter 12 in verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let's run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not resisted the point of bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? So, that's the challenge is, he says, Christians are going to face suffering and trials. And the challenge is, when you face the trials, are you going to be like the people of faith who, when they were tested, hung in there? Or when you're tested, are you going to shrink back? The Christian life is full of sufferings and tests. Um, Now, So, so this is something that's not just in the Old Testament. It's throughout scriptures. This is a timeless pattern. God is looking for hearts that really love him. This is not about performance. But the way God finds out if people really love him or not, he puts them through extremely hard times, through tests and through trials. The people who are already on board with following God. And when they're put through trials... Either they're going to obey his commands or they aren't. And then some people are going to be like Abraham and there's other people who are going to be like Saul when they go through the test. So what does that mean for us? What should we be expecting in life? Hardships, trials, tests, suffering, discipline, scourging from God, chastening. This is what we should expect. So, now, most Christians today don't expect this. And they assume that if, if they're going through tough times, there must be something wrong with this. Now, why, why is that? Because they're getting a seeker-friendly uh, uh, counterfeit gospel. The seeker-friendly gospel, one of the favorite passages, this is, I asked my son William, what, what passage in the Bible uh, is is the one that is most misused that bothers you the most, and the, uh, the, uh, the the passage he said, well, there's a bunch of them, but he said the one that really really gets to me is Jeremiah 29, where it says, "I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you and not harm you," and he says that that passage is so taken out of context. And that's the, that's the secret friendly gospel is that God loves you. He wants to bless your life. He wants to give you a wonderful life. 
a happy family, good relationships, that God is just dying to do this. All you have to do is just reach out to God, accept God, get baptized, become part of the church, whatever, and then God is going to bless your life because that's what God is just dying to do. Now, the problem is, if it, you have to be very careful when you're reading that passage in Jeremiah 29, verses 11 to 13, that you don't read anything that goes before it or anything that comes after it. Because if you read what he's saying in that passage, in chapters 28, 29, and 30, go back and read what he's saying. It's pretty sobering. He's telling the people, he says, listen, God is going to put an iron yoke around your necks at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you're going to be facing tremendous hardship, suffering, famine, plague, persecution. You're going to be hauled off into captivity. And all those false prophets that say it's really not going to be that bad, is this, is this is going to be a walk in the park and we'll be home before dinner? He said, those people are lying. In fact, it's going to be 70 years in captivity in Babylon. So when he says, I have plans to prosper you and not harm you, he's talking 70 years down the road. He's saying, basically, your grandchildren are going to see it. You're going off into captivity, so you better make the best of it. You're going to have a tough slog as a result of all the sin you've been involved in. Now, I'll work it out in the end, in the future. I am sovereign. But he's telling them they're going to go through a tough time, and the blessings are only going to be down the road. So the counterfeit gospel of God, the seeker-friendly counterfeit gospel, basically... God loves you, he wants to bless you, he wants to give you all these good things. That was never true in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't say that. Hebrews doesn't say that. Paul doesn't, I mean, Peter and Paul don't say that, they say the opposite. They say they, they, absolutely the opposite. That's not the life that Jesus led. When Jesus says, anyone who follows me has to take up his cross and follow me. When he says, any branch that's in the vine is going to be pruned. That's what he's talking about. So the message in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, it's timeless. This is who God is. This is the way God treats people. At the base, the problem with the modern, seeker-friendly, watered-down prosperity gospel is they don't understand who God is. I was talking to a sister last night who had a lot of questions about God's teaching on divorce and remarriage. And she understood what the scriptures say. But the problem that she was having, the reason she couldn't shake it is because it conflicted with her view of God. Her view of God was basically God wants people to be happy in this life. He wants them to have good families he wants them to have good relationships. He wants them to have good, happy lives. And she couldn't reconcile what Jesus taught about permanence of marriage and the consequences of divorce. She couldn't reconcile that with her view of God. So she's constantly in a state of turmoil. And the problem is 
because she doesn't understand who God is. And it's not like God has been hiding this. It's all over the scriptures. So that's, that's the challenge. God is testing us every single day. If we are his sons and daughters, we know he's going to test us. He's going to test us with all kinds of things. Test us. We're going to be tested with, put with all kinds of financial pressures, relationship pressures, temptations to only partially obey, like Saul did. Temptations to not forgive other people when we're being attacked to, to lash out or to slander other people, to be disunified. He's going he's gonna to test us with false brothers, with being slandered and being spoken against. Finances, family, our family of origin, our children, our marriages, terrible regrets and disappointments in life, bad health, isolation. God's going to, that's one thing we can count on for sure is that we are going to be tested. And why is God testing us? He wants to know, do you really love me or not? This is not a performance thing. He wants to know, do you really love me? How much do you love me? How, it was only when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son that he says, now I know that you fear me. And now I know that the the great blessings of the future are going to be inherited by you. The people who don't get this aspect of God in the Christian life are never going to be able to understand that the hard kingdom teachings, the hard teachings of Jesus will never, ever fit. And when they go through tough times, they're going to assume that something is wrong with God or something's wrong with the Bible. And they're going to completely, completely misunderstand. People lose their salvation because they have this faulty view of who God is and what God is is expecting from us. So uh, don't buy or accept any version of the counterfeit gospel. You're going to be tested. You're going to be tried. Don't think there's something wrong with it. Peter says, hey, you better make sure that when you're you're suffering, you're suffering for doing good, not for doing evil. So we always need to check ourselves. We could be suffering as a result of sin on our own part, and there's nothing noble about that. But uh, this is what God expects from us. Amen.